Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 134, recorded on December 1st, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you. And we start this week with the contract for the web officially launching. Yeah, this was on the mainstream news here in the UK. And Tim Berners-Lee has been working on this since at least the summer. We talked about it on Linux Action News 117 back in August. But now it's officially launched and it's got the website, and it's got various companies and governments signed up to it, and it's going to save the web. We're going to not have a digital dystopia. Yeah, this contract, which has been worked on by over 80 organizations for really, I think, more than a year total, outlines nine central principles to safeguard the web. Three each for governments, companies, and individuals. This document that was published by Berners-Lee's Web Foundation has the backing of more than 150 organizations, Microsoft, Twitter, and Google, and Facebook are on that list, as well as the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, At the time of this episode, notably, Amazon's not on that list. Yeah, and also Mozilla is not on the list, and they put up a brief blog post about why. And they pretty much say it's because there's no accountability, and this thing's pretty much toothless. They, They are broadly positive about it and say they support it, but they say there's no point signing it until there's some accountability there. I think they have very tactively put what is a major concern. They write, we've decided not to sign the contract, but would consider doing so if stronger accountability measures are added. That's my problem with it, is the W3C, which Tim Berners-Lee is the director of, has really kind of shown us how the exact corporations that are signed onto this document have co-opted it to implement things like DRM in the browser. Tim Berners-Lee really hasn't, unfortunately, been a very good steward of that And so now I I have very little confidence in this contract that's being signed by the very same influencers. And when there's no particular accountability clauses in here other than you just lose membership, (laughs) so you can't put a badge on your website, I don't really understand what the mechanism is to keep things in check, to actually go for all of these privacy goals and other such things. And I hate to say something like that about him because I know he's made a very significant contribution to the World Wide Web. But it seems like the wolves are in the hen house on this one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. What triggered me as a pedant is the fact that they kind of interchange web and internet as if they're synonymous, which to a lot of people they are, but it just always annoys me when people get those two confused. And the only really assurance we have here that the tech giants, as he puts them, he calls them tech giants, is that they are committed to action. That's our... That's our reassurance that they won't influence this thing such as they have with the W3C. I just find this whole thing kind of flabbergasting. It it seems like um, legacy making, and at least an attempt at it. I, I don't see what action is going to result of this that's actually going to improve the situation on the web. I completely agree with Mozilla on this one. Well, it might be a good basis from which they can add accountability. I don't know. Maybe that's clutching at straws for this. But the principle two for the governments, keep all of the internet available all of the time. If that actually happened, that would be good. Because right now, if I go to certain sites like the Pirate Bay or whatever, it's blocked by my ISP by order of my government. So the UK government literally could not sign up to this, I don't think. And I think you might recall the EFF left the W3C after they advocated for the inclusion of DRM in web standards. Because in the EFF's view, that made the web less accessible. So you could argue his or his existing organization has already been directly involved in making the web less accessible and making information available to fewer people. 
Well, you could argue that, but at the time, I was broadly in favor of adding it as a standard rather than just having every company just create their own standard. Yeah, I don't necessarily mean to reopen the debate because there are advantages, but I, I, I do see where the EFF was coming from. They're, they're the ones that left the W3C. And um, I, I, so I, I, can, I can completely understand their point. You're right, though. I do think what you were saying earlier is that there is some positive side effects to having an aspirational framework in which we should work towards. But it also could just be used as a marketing badge to say, you know, you support user rights and user privacy, and you can tell because I'm a part of this club, with no actual changes happening. I, I don't know. I guess I'm being a little pessimistic on this one, but it just seems like the ship has sailed. Well, I mentioned Mozilla. They've published their annual State of Mozilla report for 2018, and they are really emphasizing the privacy stuff that they've been doing. Yeah, you might wonder why why they report for 2018 at the end of 2019. Well, of course, that's how these things work. Really, this report release is time to coincide with when they submit their Mozilla nonprofit tax filing for the previous calendar year. So they, they time these things to come together. They really do, Joe. They really do focus on their efforts in privacy, and I'd say also in social change. And they highlight as well like their efforts to try to speak and advocate to legislation, which surprised me that they kind of hit on that so hard. Very little in there about the browser. (laughs) As it is often, they really like to highlight what makes them different. And I think this line in here is, is is a key thing to understand and fully appreciate about Mozilla. And we'll have a link to this annual report, by the way, in the notes. They say, we measure our success not only by the adoption of our products, but also by our ability to increase the control people have in their online lives, our impact on the internet, our contribution to standards, and how we work to protect the overall health of the web. Now, I don't know how they measure and get data metrics on any of those particulars, but I think that really speaks volumes about them as an organization. It's much more than a browser now. Yeah, it does sound a bit ethereal, but they have launched some other products and services over the last year or so. Indeed, and and would you really, really want to see the Mozilla folks all focused on profit and nothing else? I think that'd make us all just a bit uncomfortable. And it is a really wide umbrella when you define it like that. It's from everything from VPN services to helping people shop for products that don't spy on you as much. Like it's a weird, that's a, it's a weird wide spectrum, but I guess it kind of makes sense. If you you want some authority you can trust, and Mozilla says, hey, that's us. Yeah, and they've really amped up their privacy not included, be smart, shop safe, gift giving guide for this year. Yeah, over on the foundation.mozilla.org site, they've set up a shopping browser that lets you filter a bunch of products in like with large pictures on their creepiness factor, so you can have something that's fairly creepy or not creepy at all, and the likelihood you would buy it, and if it meets their minimum security standards. Uh, More on that in a moment. And what you get is a product listing from various vendors, and they have everything on here from Sonos products. Uh, Like they have one here, the the IKEA Sonos speaker. And they have like witty little summaries. They've, They've rewritten the product summaries, which is kind of odd, but also fun. Like their one here, a Sonos speaker with IKEA design. That's all. That's the blurb. Or, or like they have one for the Apple TV. They recommend that as a less creepy set-top box. If money's no object, the Apple TV. And I'm like, well, actually, the Apple TV is not much more expensive than the NVIDIA Shield. Like it's, I don't know, it's kind of funny, like their takes on it. And they have the Apple Watch on here. 
You ever notice the Apple Watch only becomes a watch if you jiggle your wrist or tap its face? Some watch, huh? <laughs> well, the 2019 upgrade to the new Apple Watch 5 fixes all of that. <laughs> like, they're, they're like, they're copy editors over here. And there's products on here I wouldn't expect, like the Nest Outdoor Security Camera, a Google Nest Security Camera that is literally streaming video 24-7 to Google's data centers. They don't mind it. It meets their minimum security standards. Of course... It's had a lot of votes, and 58% of the people said they would not buy it, but it's on here, and it has all the stars. <laughs> um, I guess if, it depends on what your standards are. If the security standard is it uses encryption between your home and their data center, and it does updates, and it supports passwords, and it self-updates if there's a vulnerability, then yes. I suppose that is a good metric to judge by, but... I would like to know what are they doing with this video? Like when you when it comes to smart devices, they need to go a layer deeper. Like they recommend the Switch, but they don't tell you how Nintendo Online is tracking you. They're not telling you what metrics Nintendo's collecting. And I'm not saying they have to know these things, but that would be real value. Instead of witty rewrites of product descriptions that these companies have probably worked very hard on, I would way rather they spend some money getting statements and quotes from these companies, that would be a tremendous value. Yeah, it would be. But I think what they've done does have value, showing you that there are certain products out there that are just never going to get updates and not using proper encrypted connections back to the data center because most people don't care about their data or don't necessarily think about it. So I suppose, yeah, it would be good if they flagged up the fact that these things were hoovering up data. But at least they're kind of excluding really, really dodgy IoT devices. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. I think the one that really stood out to me as really adding some value is you can go look up the Ring video doorbell products from their different types of cameras they have. And they're pretty straightforward. There's both positive things to these and there's negatives. And one of the negatives they point out is just beware, these doorbells do have some potential privacy vulnerabilities. That's how they're referring to them as vulnerabilities that could let someone go big brother on you in your home. They also mentioned that they had a hard time figuring out the exact information around what kind of encryption it uses. And they note that in September 2019, security reachers discovered a vulnerability. So there does, there does seem to be real value added to some of these, especially for people who don't follow the tech news very close. But they, they've heard of some of these product names and they decided they want to pick a few of these up. This could help eliminate a couple off that list. Yeah, and it might only have two stars, but now I've learned about this, I'm definitely going to get it. It's a $500 Wi-Fi-enabled automatic self-cleaning litter box. I'm getting it for my foster cats. Right, the Litter Robot 3, is that the one you're looking at? Yeah. I saw that. <laughs> I thought of you when I saw that one. Now, what, what's the problem? What don't they like about it? Looks like it doesn't support strong passwords. And then it's not clear if they have a formal bug bounty program. Yeah, no privacy policy as well, although it does get security updates and it does use encryption, so that's why it gets two stars. <laughs> I, like, I like this. They say occasionally it has third-party professionals perform security audits. So there's clearly been some real work done to like look into these things, you know? Wouldn't it be incredible if they had comments from the companies on here? I think that would be like next level, like not necessarily allow them to respond to everything, but maybe for some things like what's the Nest video storage policy after a year? Just get some information from from Google's Nest division. Those kinds of things would, I feel like, empower somebody like myself who I already know these things. I already know it's using SSL. I already know that Ring can share footage with the police that they can request that footage. Like I already know these things, 
But the things I can't, as a regular consumer, get access to, they might be able to get comment on. Bad news, though, I'm afraid. When I told my wife that we should get it, uh, she replied with two words that I can't say on air. <laughs> I mean, anything that makes the flat smell better seems like a net positive increase in quality of life. Yeah, exactly. I'll sell it to her that way. You know what you should have done, Joe? Christmas gift for the cat. Never even brought it up. It's the holidays. <laughs> Good thinking. Now you know to look for the next Black Friday sale, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, by this time next year, most IoT devices will probably be using Alexa voice service integration for AWS IoT Core. You said the trigger word. We apologize. Uh, this might happen uh, over the next couple of minutes for this story. You might be wondering why we're covering this, because on the surface here, it may seem like not a Linux story, but that's actually what's so neat about this. This is not only going to run on Linux, but... This is going to mean a whole new level of Echo devices built into things from washing machines to light switches to microwaves because they're putting out a nearly DIY complete kit that you can use for development purposes. And then they've created a secure way to tunnel MQTT messages back up to the AWS servers. Now, self-hosted listeners will, will recognize that's a big deal. They're, they're going all in on MQTT with this, and they write on their website, devices will communicate with AVS, that's the, we won't say her name, voice service, over a single secure MQTT connection to AWS IoT Core, and it connects with your account, it, it uses a, a key exchange system, and it allows their cloud service that you deploy to subscribe to certain topics on each one of these IoT devices. Like, take a smart plug. Is it on? What's the current draw? How long has it been running? These are topics that the service can subscribe to and get updates on when the device provides them. And then it stores them at the AWS cloud infrastructure instead of those things having to remain on device. So they can be pretty low-end devices. You You pair that up with what are like these little platforms. Everything with... Boxes with screens to crazy microphone array hardware boxes that are just really bare bones dev kits. And it's going to mean systems that need less than a megabyte of RAM and have a really low end ARM Cortex M class CPU can now do echo services. Yeah, it used to be that devices needed 50 megabytes or more of memory and run a proper full-blown operating system like Linux or Android, whereas now it's going to be just real bare-bones, very cheap devices, and all of that processing is going to happen on AWS. And that's the genius of this, because Amazon want to win the voice assistant war, and they also want to drive companies and people to AWS. It's kind of a double win for them. And if these companies making light switches or dishwashers or whatever use this tech, which seems very likely to me because they're lowering that barrier of entry now. It's going to mean that the echo devices and the word that you don't want me to say becomes ubiquitous and it's all going through AWS. And if you look at the pricing for it, it's the typical cloud pricing. It's just a little bit for this, a little bit for that, but it soon adds up. And if you're shipping hundreds of thousands of dishwashers or washing machines or whatever, you're going to end up spending a lot of money on AWS and Amazon gets to cash in. Yeah. Uh, you joke about the washing machine situation, but I actually think it's going to happen. Imagine a scenario where the, the latest Whirlpool or Samsung, maybe this is already a thing, I haven't shopped for a washing machine in a while, 
they want to have integration with cloud services so that way you could just check in on if your load is done washing yet. Commercial washer and dryer outfits have this all over the states now. You start a load, you can check the status on your phone, and you get a notification when it's done. Consumers are going to want that in even the most basic washer and dryers in a few years. It sounds crazy, but you know it will happen. And so Amazon creating these kits that when you buy one of these kits, you go through them, it comes with out-of-box connectivity to AWS IoT Core. It's already qualified and ready to go for their audio algorithms for far-field voice pickup. It supports their algorithms for echo cancellation and the A-word, wake-word system all already set up and ready to connect back to their IoT core. And you can get it for super cheap, and you can scale that way, way up. You touched on it, Joe, but having had some real hands-on experience with the Echo products and watched how they've developed over the last few years, nobody is playing the game as seriously as Amazon is. The Nest line of products and the HomePod are both perfectly great for their own reasons, if you're into those kinds of things. But nobody is bringing the fight like the Echoes. There's way more variations of products. They update them on a routine basis. They have really kind of moonshot products like the ring coming soon that is an actual ring on your finger. And on top of that, it's constantly asking me for information as like a, like, I don't know how to put it, like a, like a self-learning mechanism. One of the things that the Google products have historically been good at is random knowledge. You can ask it something, and it'll pull up a knowledge card. They're solving that now on the Echo platform by sourcing things from different places like Wolfram Alpha and Wikipedia. And there's a system in there where it judges if it's the right time to ask me. And it says, by the way, was that the information you were looking for? And I I can give it self-correcting information every now and then, and it gets better and better. Plus, they roll out new features and celebrity integrations and different size screens and all of these fancy products that show they are so much more serious about this. But When I saw that they were embracing MQTT and they were doing it this way over the internet, my mind really started racing where this could go in the future. On the self-hosted podcast, we talk about the Tasmota firmware, which you can reflash smart devices with this open source firmware. And it's all about using MQTT to communicate back to your home system. It's something that the open source community has embraced because back in 2010, it went royalty free. It's been around since the late 90s. And in 2010, the floodgates opened, and we've seen some really cool implementations of different uses of MQTT. So there's a lot of products out there that you can reflash and use MQTT, or cool projects that use it already, and I could see how they could expand this to include and support all of those, too. Well, so you think that's a possibility, then? You don't think they're going to be locked down? Uh, It's hard to say. I mean, they could. That's the thing. That's the beauty of it. If they really wanted to take over and let you really integrate all kinds of devices into their AWS IoT platform with some tech switches they flip, they could enable that. And they may never, but they're positioned to if they feel like it's necessary, it seems. Well, I mentioned the word dystopia earlier. This is what it feels like to me. Not being someone who uses any of these devices, I would never have an echo in my house. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be like, I, I suspect, I think it's going to be like how you just really can't buy non-smart TVs anymore. They're all smart TVs now. Yeah. I suspect it's sort of like smartifying everything. It's the smartification of everything. And it's really obnoxious because you're right, there's clear privacy implications. Um, we do have a podcast that covers these types of things, including how you can block these types of things at the DNS level, which is what I do at my house. I experiment with these things on and off, and when I'm done, 
I actually just leave the devices in, but I just block the functionality at the DNS level, and it works really well. Well, like I always say, I'll get into this when I can run it completely on my LAN and not have to connect to any sort of cloud services, which seems like it's getting closer, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah, not yet, but I think it will be sooner than later. I think there'll be a couple of, oh, maybe I should save this for a prediction. Hmm. I think I will, Joe. I think I'm going to save it for a predictions episode. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should predict that someone will crack these devices using Kali Linux. Hey, yeah, especially the new release, which looks great. Kali 2019.4 is out with lots of new fancy features, but I think there's one main feature that has nothing to do with vulnerability assessments or exploitation that you care about. Yeah, they've switched to XFCE by default. Very sensible idea. <laughs> and it's a pretty slick-looking XFCE, too. Yeah, it's pretty nice. It's a little bit too dark for my taste. I know you're all in on dark mode, but for me, it's a little bit hard to read sometimes. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> but one cool feature of it um, is Kali Undercover. And so you just type Kali-Undercover in the terminal, and it just instantly switches to look like Windows 10. So if you're out in public somewhere and you don't want people to know that you are up to whatever it is you're up to with Kali Linux, it looks like Windows 10 and no one will bat an eyelid. Okay. All right. But be honest. Did you really think it looked like Windows 10? I think it looked enough like it to not attract attention. From like across the room. Oh, yeah. And that's that's all it needs to do, right? Yeah. I, okay. All right. Yeah, I'll give it that. That'd be my level of passes the sniff test there. Um, I wouldn't use it, though. I liked that GTK theme. I thought it was great. And they did have a light version of it, too, if you wanted to go back. There's a couple of things about this release that really impressed me. I think it's been maybe a couple of years since I've given Kali a go. Man, they've done a lot with this thing. So we've talked about the way it looks, but uh, what's really remarkable, in my opinion, is their commitment to documentation. Everywhere throughout the menu, it's very easy to get information about things you could try doing, ways to learn, even ways to get professional training. And when you launch a command line tool, it opens up in the shell with the tac-tac help already set. So you get all the information that that command can do. You get what I mean by that. It's really helpful because you get all of the flags, all the information right there, and it makes it approachable. But on top of that, they've made it super simple to set persistent USB mode because it's right in the grub menu. So people that aren't necessarily Linux pros but are trying to learn a Linux tool so that way they can improve their network security have really easy, obvious options. And then last but not least, they've made a commitment to moving their documentation to Markdown and putting it up on GitHub so people can make pull requests and merge requests. And it's approachable being in Markdown that just about anybody except for Joe could write it. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I was like, Markdown. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that they've added PowerShell to it, which is not something I'm going to use, but I think potentially a lot of Windows users coming over may be used to using. Yeah, I think that's pretty neat. PowerShell, because honestly, it's a it's a multi-operating system world right now. And to be able to go after Windows boxes and Linux boxes from one OS is, a, well, it's a feature. So there's one other really kind of large headlining feature here that we haven't touched on. Again, I think it's important to mention that Kali offers so much more than these headline features. But this is pretty neat. It's called NetHunter Kex, and it's a full Kali desktop on your Android phone. So in a nutshell, it allows you to attach your Android device to an HDMI output along with a Bluetooth keyboard and a mouse, and you get full, as they put it, no compromise, Kali desktop on an Android phone. Of course, it's up on an HDMI screen, but the idea could be maybe you've got a Raspberry Pi device or a laptop or a VM that's headless. 
And then you can just sit down, plug an Android device in, and get full access to it using this NetHunter. Yeah, that is pretty slick. And GNOME users, don't worry. There is still a GNOME version of it. It's just XFC by default. There's also a Mate and Plasma version. Oh, really? So pretty much all the bases are covered, yeah. You know, I didn't even bother checking for those. That normally would be part of my overall review, but I was... I would really recommend giving the XFCE version a go because they really strike a balance between decent performance, look, and resources. This is such a powerful distribution. This is a real gift, and I don't I don't say that lightly. Um, having done this professionally back in the day and before Kali existed, but other tools before it did, and it it made all the difference because I I had one spot to sit down and learn these things because they also link you to vulnerability databases. And, and scenarios that you can use to learn that are um, publicly available that the community posts. And I, I've got to dig more into this because they've done so much good work with this distro. There's other things they've included by default that we can't even touch on because it would just take the whole episode. So I think Wes and I will talk about it more in Linux Unplugged this week. Well, as I always say, I look forward to listening to it three times. <laughs> yes, as the editor, I'd say at least three times probably. <laughs> Not to mention <laughs> yeah. if you tune in live. <laughs> yeah, I'll make it uh, an even four, eh? Well, check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes of this year's show. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Okay.